Now you talk about terror. What about for me? I've been terrorized all my days. I'm all my days. Democratic representatives Cory Bush, Rashida Tlaib, Andre Carson, Summer Lee, and Delia Ramirez introduced a ceasefire now resolution on October 16th to halt the siege on Gaza. The resolution calls on the Biden administration to demand an end to the Israeli attacks and to send humanitarian aid to Gaza. Eight other Democrats signed on as original co-sponsors, and an additional five have since sponsored the resolution. Along with other members of Congress, this brings the total number of sponsors to 26. Compare those numbers with a House resolution passed on October 25th by a 412 to 10 margin, expressing solidarity with Israel as it, quote, defends itself against the barbaric war launched by Hamas, end quote. The resolution made no mention of Israeli airstrikes on Gaza that have killed more than 8,000 Palestinians, 3,000 of them children, and displaced some 1.4 million people. Representative Betty McCollum, the author of congressional legislation that would impose restrictions on how the Israeli military can use USAID, backed the resolution. Palestinian rights advocates and anti-war activists have staged protests and sit-ins at congressional offices around the country demanding a ceasefire, not only to protect civilian lives and facilitate the release of hostages, but to prevent a regional war. In the Senate, only Bernie Sanders has called for a halt to the Israeli air assault, but even he stopped short of calling for a ceasefire. Why is there such a tepid response to clear-cut Israeli war crimes? Why has most of the Progressive Caucus refused to call for a ceasefire? Why has the Democratic Party and the Biden administration shut down all discussions of a ceasefire, including vetoing UN resolutions? calling for a ceasefire. Are these lawmakers frightened of the Israel lobby, AIPAC, which has already targeted representatives Jamal Bowman and Ilhan Omar, both of whom are calling for a ceasefire? Are they captive to the war industry, which profits from this assault? And yet a poll released by the progressive firm Data for Progress found that 66% of likely voters strongly or somewhat agree that the U.S. should call for a ceasefire, a percentage that rises to 80% among Democrats. 53% of Democrats told CBS news pollsters that they oppose the U.S. sending more weapons to Israel. Joining me to discuss the grassroots effort to impose a ceasefire is Medea Benjamin, a co-founder of the feminist anti-war group Code Pink. Medea, you've been a peace activist for many years. I wonder what this moment compares to. Is it, does it feel like uh, the aftermath of 9-11? Can you draw a kind of historical analogy? It certainly has uh, feelings like 9-11 when the country is turned upside down and when there is so much censorship and uh, no room for uh, those who call for an end to 
violence. Uh, and it also is reminiscent of the grassroots opposition in the uh, terms of the huge demonstrations that we uh, found and helped to organize after 9-11 uh, and comparing those with the enormous and really spectacular protests that have been going on now, uh, there was uh, so many uh, good examples of, of a large, large protests in New York City and Washington, D.C., in Chicago and San Francisco, all over the country, even in small towns I have been visiting. And they said, wow, we never had 500 people out in our small town, uh, as well as uh, the sit-ins and offices. So it is reminiscent of what happened after 9-11. I would say one of the big differences, though, is that now there is a Democrat in the White House, and that really changes uh, the alliances that we have uh, in terms of people in Congress and the ability to uh, make uh, those alliances with the grassroots more uh, overt. Um, as you said, there's only a small number of a Congress people in the Democratic Party, now 18 of them that have called for a ceasefire. Uh, so it's very difficult when you have a, a Democrat in the White House to get the kind of response from Democrats that we should be having when we're seeing this kind of mass slaughter. You've been very involved with Ukraine. Uh, you also saw the Biden administration sabotage a ceasefire effort. I think it was orchestrated primarily by Turkey. Um, and I want you to compare. I mean, for me, it's stunning to have an active effort on the part of a democratic administration to shut down any discussion of a ceasefire, both domestically and internationally. Well, yes, in the case of Ukraine, it's been uh, constant that the U.S. had tried has tried to stop uh, any peace talks from going on. We saw the uh, what happened a month after the Russian invasion and how uh, President Erdogan from Turkey uh, was really quite successful in helping to come up with a 15-point peace plan between Ukraine and Russia uh, that was then sabotaged by the U.S. and the U.K. And ever since then, when there have been efforts for a peace plan, whether it's coming from the Pope or the Six Nations of Africa or the heads of states of countries in Latin America, America, like Mexico and Brazil, uh, and then the China effort at a peace plan, uh, the U.S. has nixed all of them. And so uh, here we have another comparison between uh, Ukraine, where the U.S. is uh, is pursuing that war uh, because it wants to weaken Russia. And then you have the U.S. not calling for a ceasefire in the case of Israel. And instead of making a comparison saying that uh, Ukraine is an occupied country and Palestine is an occupied country. Uh, they say that Ukraine and Israel are the two democracies that are uh, fighting for their preservation. When you walk the halls in Congress, Chris, you see many, many Congress people have a uh, stand with Ukraine and stand with Israel sides uh, right next to each other. I want to talk about the the what you look at, at the cause of uh to, to the extent that perhaps the, the the defense industry or the war industry is pushing this, uh, and also the fact that in, in no administration at this point can control uh, the, 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 the kind of permanent war machine uh, and tie both that into what's happened in Ukraine and what's happening in Israel. 
There is such a huge lobby by this military industrial complex. We don't really see them uh, in the halls of Congress because they don't have to go walking the doors like we do. They go directly into the rooms in the Capitol uh, to meet with the members of Congress. Uh, They even have people uh, embedded in their own offices that come from the different branches of the military and many of those work previously in the industry itself or will go to work for the industry when they leave. And of course, that revolving door we see uh, with members of Congress themselves. We see it with the Secretary of Defense, Austin, who came directly from uh, the board of Raytheon. Uh, these con- the, this um, revolving door is so insidious and so corrupt uh, that you see uh, that there are more lobbyists for the weapons industry than there are members of Congress. And so you get both of the Democrat and Republican, the overwhelming majority of them, take money from this industry, and they do the bidding for the industry by keeping this war machine going, whether it was uh, approving um, billions of dollars for the war in Ukraine uh, or uh, the the four billion dollars a year for Israel, uh, or the justification for the intensive buildup for a potential war with China, and now we're seeing the call for uh, another tranche, enormous tranche of money, a hundred and four billion dollars uh, that the administration is asking for. Uh, that is just uh, mana for these uh, weapons companies. So indeed, they have a large role to play in keeping the U.S. in a constant state of war. Is the the problem, and of course, many of these voices, the occupation at Grand Central was Jewish voices for peace, uh, J Street. We have you know all sorts of Jewish groups in the United States who have decried uh, the saturation bombing of Gaza and called for a ceasefire. But is the problem that uh, uh, essentially you're running into not only the lobby of the war industry, but the Israel lobby? Well, yes, it's important to call out the Israel lobby. There is APAC, and then there are the lobby groups that are associated with, as well as uh, Christian groups like KUFI, Christians United for Israel. Uh, And all of these groups are extremely powerful. They have a lot of money, and they use their money to uh, primary candidates who have expressed some sympathy for Palestine uh, to take out members of Congress who have expressed some uh, sympathy for Palestine. Uh, We saw that before October 7th, but we're seeing it on steroids. And I think we will in the upcoming election uh, when they are targeting people like Jamal Bowman, like Ilhan Omar. They tried unsuccessfully to take out Summer Lee in Pittsburgh, but I'm sure they will be trying again this time. Uh, And they've stopped uh, some very, very wonderful progressives from becoming members of Congress. Uh, like uh, Nina Turner or uh, taking out Congresswoman uh, Donna Edwards. Uh, So they have a very insidious impact. They support a lot of uh, Republicans, uh, and they have been seen in more recent years as being uh, much more of a Republican group, but they try to be, quote, nonpartisan. And they support, I think it's about 120 of the House Democrats. Uh, They have really divided the Black Caucus by giving a lot of money to people like Hakeem Jeffries, to Congressman Meeks, um, while they try to take out the progressive members of the Black Caucus. Uh, They've also given money to about half of the progressive members of 
uh, the progressive caucus in the House. Uh, so they're, uh, they play this role of trying to be bipartisan in their effort to uh, take out any voices of those uh, who call for a ceasefire right now, uh, who call for a real resolution to the um, ongoing problem in the Middle East, whether it's Israel and Palestine or the issue of Iran, where they have been pushing for more and more sanctions on Iran. Uh, and uh, they have been pushing, for example, for the U.S. to uh, not be in the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, so it's not just Israel, it's the whole Middle East where they have a very insidious role. Let's talk about the Biden administration's response. And if you could, uh, in particular, talk about figures like Jake Sullivan uh, and uh, the Secretary of State Blinken. Well, the um, Biden administration has uh, talked about its rock solid support for Israel and is now calling for another $14 billion to be sent for Israel, uh, while the global community uh, is demanding a ceasefire. We see the vote at the United Nations, uh, where it was 1,412 nations saying we need a immediate humanitarian uh, pause. And there were only 12 nations, the United States, Israel, and a handful of others saying no. Uh, so the U.S. is quite isolated. And yet you have Biden, who acts like he is the uh, leader of the global community, and Jake Sullivan, who echoes uh, that rock-solid support for Israel. Uh, and um, I think in general, the, the White House being out of step um, with the uh, global majority, as well as the uh, opinion polls that we see in the United States, which are quite remarkable to talk about because it not only goes against what the Biden administration and the majority of Congress are saying, uh, but it goes against what the mainstream reports in the press are. And yet people see through that and want to see a ceasefire. What do you think it is that's driving? Because the Obama administration had a very uneasy relationship with the Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu. In fact, Netanyahu spoke to Congress, uh, was invited to speak to Congress to denounce Obama's Iran deal. And yet you see Biden just slavishly uh, kind of in service to this extreme, uh, probably the most extremist Israeli government in Israel's history. Well, you know from your history in the region and, and Biden's history that he's always been a tremendous supporter from Israel. He's the one that said if it, it, it didn't exist, we'd have to create it. Uh, he has uh, been, uh, as you say, more than Obama, uh, just um, going along with Israel while the Israeli government has become more and more right wing, while these settlers have become uh, more and more vicious. Uh, and while the problem, uh, while the uh, Israeli people before the October 7th uh, uh, conflict have been out on the streets uh, calling for uh, the end to uh, Netanyahu and protesting his attempts to uh, uh, take over the government and the, the courts. Um, so there has been plenty of room there where Biden could have stood up and actually said, uh, he is not going to be this slavish supporter to a right-wing fascist um, Israeli government, but in, instead he has continued to support it 100% and, of course, used our taxpayer money to do so. 
And what do you think the motive? Is it just political expediency? I think it's, uh, it, you know, you, you could say it's political expediency, and, and yet the tide is turning. And so I think it's becoming more and more of a liability. And that's why we see a little bit of toning down of the Biden administration, because they realize uh, that this is one uh, going against what public opinion is now saying, uh, and two, that uh, there is no strategy uh, that Israeli ha Israel has uh, in terms of its incessant bombing and now the ground invasion, uh, what is it going to do after? If it indeed takes over Gaza, what will it do afterwards? And three, it's concerned about a regional war. And so I think we are seeing a slight shift in the Biden administration uh, because there are people within the administration uh, that are uh, questioning this policy. We have the example of uh, a somebody who quit over this, but we also know that there are hundreds of people who have signed letters within the administration uh, saying they disagree with this policy. I was at a demonstration the other day and talking to somebody next to me, and she started crying and said that she works in the State Department and she can't stand what this government is doing, and her and her colleagues feel the same way. So I think the Biden administration is feeling the heat from many corners. Well, isn't no end policy what the U.S. has been doing in the Middle East for the last two decades, whether it's Iraq, Libya, Syria, anywhere else? Well, absolutely. And uh, with this whole idea that goes back to the Obama times of wanting to shift from the Middle East and focus more on Asia, which itself is insanity because they talk about having a war with China, um, but they have not been able to shift from the Middle East because the U.S. has created such a disaster in the Middle East. Uh, and hasn't been able to recover from not only the constant support of Israel, but the invasion of Iraq and the destruction of that uh, society that continues to this day when you see uh, many Iraqis in power that are more pro-Iran uh, than they are pro-U.S. Uh, and of course, things like um, uh, the uh, instability that we see now uh, in terms of uh, what could break out in Iran uh, with the uh, the uh, intense uh, opposition and intense sanctions that the U.S. continues to place on Iran that has not only hurt the Iranian people, but has uh, given more power to the most conservative elements of Iranian society. Let's talk about Gaza. You've led delegations to Gaza. Um, why is Gaza important for you as a peace activist? Well, I think it's important that people are finally understanding um, that in, in the last 16 years, the people of Gaza have been imprisoned, where uh, their every move is really regulated by the Israeli government, even though Israel, quote, pulled out. Uh, we have been uh, involved in the uh, freedom flotillas that try to reach Gaza by land, uh, which is impossible to do because the Israelis then board the boat and confiscate them uh, and don't let the fishermen even go out uh, into the uh, waters that that uh, to, to be able to make a living as fishermen. Um, we see that there's no airport in Gaza, so people cannot get in and out of the country by air. Uh, the land borders are controlled by the Israelis, and even the border in Egypt uh, is controlled by the Israelis. And once in a while, the Egyptians will uh, open up that border. Uh, but as we see today, um, they will not do so on a regular basis um, without the consent of Israel. So people are locked into that country. 
Um, they are uh, not able to uh, thrive economically. In fact, um, horrific rates of unemployment and poverty uh, because Israel controls what goes in uh, and out of that country uh, or that strip of land. Uh, and um, people live in despair. And that's why we saw uh, what we saw on October 7th when uh, people are not allowed to uh, live decent lives. Um, we have met with Hamas several times when we went to Gaza because they do control uh, who comes into that country if you get in through the Rafah border of Egypt. Uh, and they have told us time and time again of their efforts to reach out to the United States to actually have uh, uh, diplomatic talks with the United States. They did it under Bush. They tried under Clinton. They tried it under uh, Obama, in fact, gave us a letter to take to Obama when he first came into power saying, we would like to talk to you about Israel's constant violations of international law. And they cited Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, uh, human rights uh, groups in Israel itself, and said, uh, asked, why is the United States always siding with Israel as it oppresses uh, us and violates international law, and they never, ever, ever had a response back from the U.S. government. Let's talk about the consequences first for Israel uh, and then regionally, potentially, if this continues. Well, the consequences for Israel are really hard to predict at this point because I think there is uh, this growing international uh, hatred for Israel, and in the region especially, uh, how can they continue on this path? And yet I don't see the uh, light at the end of the tunnel, Chris, because I don't see uh, the two-state solution. I don't see uh, the Israeli government removing these uh, entrenched settlers from the communities that they would have to be removed from for a real two-state solution to exist. And I have a hard time even envisioning a one-state democratic country with equal rights for all with the kind of hatred that uh, has been uh, uh, built up not only over the years, but so intensely in these last few weeks. And of course, we don't know what's going to happen uh, to the people of Gaza and the West Bank in the coming weeks as Israel intensifies uh, its uh, it land invasion in Gaza and its oppressive tactics in the West Bank. Um, so I find that it's very hard to predict uh, and that I really do worry about a uh, about this turning into a regional war. We have ministers within the government who have long called for what they call transfer. That's the euphemism for ethnic cleansing. Uh, they are fanatics. I lived in Jerusalem and covered uh, Israeli politics under the era of Mer Kahana. Many of these people are descendants of Kahana. But in those days, Kahana was... Uh, his party was outlawed. He was Israeli society had pushed him aside. Now, of course, the Kahana and Kahana-like followers, uh, openly racist, uh, calling for violence against Palestinians, essentially run the government. How serious do you take the threats of uh, complete ethnic cleansing, essentially pushing Palestinians out of the country over the Rafah border into refugee camps in the Sinai? Well, certainly that is what uh, a number of Israelis in the government would like to see happen. Uh, the Egyptian government is resisting that, uh, knowing that it would 
not only be horrific for uh, the over a million people who have now been pushed out of the North and are homeless, um, but it would be also difficult for uh, CC to keep governing internally because I think there would be so much internal opposition to that. And of course, the people in Gaza know that as they are being pushed from the north to the south, um, that if they uh, indeed were able to leave through the Rafa border into Egypt, they would never be allowed back again. And so that is why there is so much resistance to leaving, even though they are um, the uh, they are sitting ducks right now um, with the constant bombardments, as it, not only in the north but in the south as well. Um, so I don't know that these uh, this this scheme uh, to push the people out of Gaza uh, will be uh, possible in today's world, where there is such opposition to that uh, in the Arab world and such opposition to that globally. The Egyptian press has reported that the United States has made overtures to the Sisi government. They have a massive debt. Uh, the eco Egyptian economy is uh, very precarious. I think they have about $168 billion in debt. Uh, they have made overtures to uh, pay off all or part of that debt, as well as other financial incentives, essentially buy CC out. The other thing that's important to note is that this blockade now includes water. I mean, water purification plants have, uh, are not working. Uh, food, I mean, with a, they of course, have looted UN warehouses. And the third factor, and I know this from having been in Sarajevo during the war, is the intensity of the bombing. So when I was in Sarajevo, we were being hit with about three to 400 shells a day, uh, along with constant sniper fire. That was about four to five dead a day, two dozen wounded a day. Um, the scale in Gaza, where hundreds of people are being killed a day and thousands are wounded, uh, and Sarajevo was awful. I still have nightmares about it. But I think it's important to realize the level of bombing is unlike certainly anything we've seen in the 21st century. It's, it's, uh, it, it's uh, uh, just saturation and indiscriminate bombing. Well, it is so horrific, Chris, to think of uh, the over 8,000 people that have been killed so far, uh, most of them civilians, uh, 3,000 of them children, uh, the lack of food, water, electricity uh, going on. And I want to circle back uh, while the Biden administration is asking for more money for Israel. And why we, while we can't get one Republican in the Congress to call for a ceasefire, while we can only get 18, and then there have been some individual calls. So uh, you, if you add them together, only 27 members of Congress uh, out of 435 in the House um, that are calling for a ceasefire, you have to ask, don't they have a heart? Don't they care about people? Many of them have their own children, their own grandchildren. Don't they care about the children of Palestinians? And uh, what we understand too, is that until the US Congress puts the pressure on the Biden administration and the Biden administration puts the pressure on Israel, these bombings will only escalate and the land invasion that we're seeing right now is expanding. So I think that we in the US have horrific blood on our hands. The members of Congress have blood on their hands. The White House has blood on its hands. And the only uh, thing that we can do if we care about these people in Gaza who every day 
are facing hell on earth is to do sit-ins in the offices of our Congress people, is to demand that every single one of them who is supposed to represent us uh, start calling for ceasefire. If they don't like that word ceasefire, if that's too difficult for them, then call for a cessation of hostilities. And if that's too difficult for them, then call for a humanitarian pause. Do whatever you can to stop this bombing, to stop the murder, to stop the killing. And then as we move from there, we have to stop the U.S. money from going to Israel because we can't allow ourselves to be furnishing these bombs that are dropping on the heads of families and wiping out entire families. Uh, we can't allow the United States to be complicit in this because we are being hated around the world. And I fear for our security as well. When we travel around with U.S. passports, we are not going to be greeted with a smile in many places around the world. In fact, the U.S. State Department is now warning people about uh, being in places like Lebanon and saying that we can't protect you. So whether or not the elected officials care about the lives of Palestinians, they certainly should be representing us and giving the green light to Israel to continue on this slaughter, on this genocide, on this ethnic cleansing is not making us safe here at home. Before I ask you about the regional consequences, I want to ask you about what happened to the anti-war wing of the Democratic Party, which used to exist, McGovern, Fulbright, these figures. Well, they have uh, shrunk down to a handful at this point, uh, and it has even been very difficult for the first two weeks of this to even get our dear Barbara Lee, who was the leader uh, back in the um, after 9-11 of saying no to war, uh, to get her to put her name on this uh, call for a ceasefire, which she finally did. Um, but where is the anti-war uh, sentiment in Congress? Um, uh, as I said earlier, when you have a Democrat in Congress, it's much harder to get these Democrats to stand up. Uh, if this were Trump who were carrying out this policy or another Republican, we would see a large number of Democrats uh, or certainly a larger number of Democrats uh, that were with us. Right now, in these massive protests that are happening, all I see is Rashida Tlaib, and Cory Bush that come out to address the protesters. Uh, and we have been in the offices of very progressive members of Congress on other issues, like Mark Pocan, who used to be the co-chair of the Progressive Caucus. Uh, he wouldn't sign the resolution. He finally came out with his own uh, statement calling for a ceasefire, but that was only after a lot of pressure from people in his district and in Washington, D.C. The same for O'Connor, who has been very good on so many of these issues, including the war in Yemen, uh, he will not call for a ceasefire in the case of Gaza. Uh, so it has been extremely difficult. We talked about the power of APAC. We talked about a Democrat in the White House. But I think we have to talk about the lack of courage and the lack of compassion uh, that is keeping many of these Democrats from joining us. Uh, and then we do have to talk about the Republicans because there was a sizable number of Republicans that still don't want to send more money for the war in Ukraine. And one of uh, them told me when I asked him, he said, because I hate war, but now he wants to send money to Israel to be killing the people of Hamas. So a tremendous inconsistency 
Uh, but on the positive side, there is an anti-war movement now around Gaza uh, that we have not seen uh, before. Uh, and uh, I am very inspired by that movement. And it's not just uh, these very uh, courageous Jewish groups, but very courageous Palestinian groups, because right now it's actually easier to speak out as a Jew than it is uh, as a Palestinian. So when we see the Palestine youth movement, when we see American Muslims for Palestine, when we see groups like CARE, C-A-I-R, uh, coming out, um, they are putting themselves at risk and um, they are uh, facing tremendous attacks uh, for doing that. But I am very encouraged to see the kind of buildup on the grassroots level for uh, stopping the war in Gaza and stopping the U.S. support for Israel. Let's just close by looking at the potential consequences beyond the borders of Israel. Uh, there have been strikes on U.S. bases in Syria and Iraq. Israel has carried out airstrikes in Syria, two airstrikes against the airports in Aleppo and Damascus. Hezbollah has stepped up its activity along the northern border of Israel. Uh, the Turkish president has been quite outspoken, calling Hamas resistance fighters. Uh, and then you have Iran. Uh, how could this potentially just go horribly, horribly wrong? Well, I think you've just laid it out, Chris. Um, the Iran is a very huge society with a huge military. Despite all the sanctions that have really hurt the economy of Iran, uh, the Iranians have continued uh, to build up their uh, armaments, their drones, their, uh, their uh, massive military, uh, and they stand ready. They do not want to get involved in this war. They have made it very clear and they have been quite restrained. Uh, but they are ready to do so if needed. And of course, they have their allies and Hezbollah that also don't want to get involved in this war, um, but are being pushed and pushed and pushed. And you talked about the uh, U.S. strikes in Syria. Well, once again, I think the uh, Syrian government has been through so many years of war, does not want to get involved in this, and yet is being provoked. Uh, and um, we have many people in the government in Iraq uh, that are furious with the uh, Israelis and with the U.S. support for Israel. Uh, and so there is a region about to blow, uh, just as we have been fighting the war in Ukraine and warning about it turning into a third world war or even a nuclear war. Um, we have to warn about the uh, consequences of this war that Israel is now waging in Gaza and how it could turn into a regional conflagration uh, that will um, set the region on fire. And um, that's why it is so important uh, that we build up this anti-war movement in the United States and link arms with the massive movement that's happening all over the world including in Europe, where there have been attempts by governments in places like Germany and France to make it illegal to carry a Palestinian flag or illegal uh, to have pro-Palestine demonstrations. People have come out on the streets anyway. And so uh, I do want to end by saying I think that is our role as citizens right now uh, to try to stop this war and avoid a regional war is to come out in massive numbers to say no to the Israeli attacks and to say yes to a free Palestine.
Thank you. That was Medea Benjamin, peace activist, co-founder of Code Pink. I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, David Hebden, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrishedges.substack.com. Thank you.